morning, folks. It's time for Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show about the crucial political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and the nation at large. Join us for a stimulating, thought-provoking discussion. You'll get the facts as we focus on the challenges facing everyone. Good morning, folks. Welcome to Democratic Perspective. Steve Williamson here. Sitting across from me is Karen McClellan. And um, it's we're still in, you know, uh, public radio mode. Where we're asking for donation. We actually got enough donations online last uh, month that we're, for the first time, we're not in a deficit. Um, we really need your folks' support. Go on the website and click on that button. Uh, we want to announce a couple of a couple of other things. The Verde Valley Yavapai Democrats are having a meeting, Karen, this um, this Thursday. This Thursday, four thirty, it starts. The real solid part of the meeting starts at five, and they have the candidates for the LD or legislative district. Yeah, I'm not sure the candidates with it. They'll have petitions available. Petitions. You can, available. If you're going to be in Cottonwood, you can sign them that day. I'm sure. I don't know if they're in the door office yet, but they will be shortly. Because for those of us that live in the Verde Valley and Sedona, we cannot sign the petitions for our potential state legislators online. Why we'll have not? to do it in person. Um, because that's we're in a different district, and the uh, online signing system. They're gonna, you know, this, you know, doesn't take that into account very well. They have to actually, so you can only you can only sign f- petitions for people that are with sort of in your old legislative district. Um, so we'll, those will have to sign on online. Yeah. Check out the door website. They don't have listed their speakers for this next month, but the door website is a good place to keep uh, yep. up to date on all that sort of stuff. And we want to thank El Portal, um, uh, Steve Segner's uh, beautiful hotel. Uh, for supporting the show. Uh, we really appreciate that. Our guest today is probably pretty familiar, if you listen to Democratic Perspective, as Dan Single. And he's um, been on the show last week. And last week we talked about something very different than what we're going to be talking about this week. We're talking about critical election theory. I mean, that's one name for the the stuff and it com- uh, comes from political science um, academia and it's a very interesting theory and we think you folks will be will find this really interesting and Dan's an expert on it um, Dan are you there yes I am all right well folks even though this is AM radio uh, Dan wants to run through the last several hundred years of American elections uh, and tell us about critical elections. I think that actually is the best way to do it, Dan, because when you when you search for critical election theory on um, online, uh, to me the, the the best source was Wikipedia, because otherwise you end up in, in lost in all these academic journals with uh, very special focuses, and also um, they have these little doors that you have to walk through to get to the articles, which are basically you have to have subscriptions to their academic journals. Um, and you get kind of get lost in that. The Wikipedia is pretty, is pretty uh, uh, comprehensive. So, Dan, walk us through critical election theory. There's different names for it. Why don't you tell us what the names are and then walk through the elections, starting with Thomas Jefferson. 
okay. Uh, this actually is a lot simpler than uh, the name sounds. You hear critical election theory, you think this is something highly technical. Uh, but really, it's not. Uh, it is, however, the dominant way that political scientists and political historians understand uh, our, the wor- way our politics works. So it's pretty interesting. Uh, the essence of it is that you can divide our political history uh, into uh, distinctive periods or cycles that run, uh, on average, about 36 years. So in any one cycle, uh, one political party, either the Democrats or Republicans, will be the dominant party. Uh, and then uh, the other party will be the minority party. Uh, in that space of nine elections over the 36 years, the majority party will win seven times. The minority party will win twice. And it's incredibly regular. There have been so few exceptions to this in our history that it's astounding. Uh, However, most of the exceptions have taken place recently. Uh, If you look at uh, America, you know, the the past of our country, you find that critical election theory holds beautifully from 1800 to the year 2008 when Barack Obama was elected. So that's one period in which it's unbelievably regular. And then you go from 2008 up to the present, and who knows what's going on. (laughs) The pattern seems to have broken down, or maybe it hasn't. We don't know. And we can talk about that. Uh, I think, in fact, it will be quite interesting to talk about it. But let's go back to the period when critical election theory worked well. Uh, It began, as uh, you said, Steve, with the election of Thomas Jefferson in 1800. Uh, Jefferson was the candidate of what was called the Democratic-Republican Party. They had the two names combined. And he beat John Adams, who was a Federalist. And uh, from that point, for the next 28 years, Jefferson's party won every presidential election. Now, I should point out, this only refers to presidential elections. It has implications all across our politics, but the theory itself just refers to uh, the race for the White House. So, okay, Jefferson won, and his party was established in 1800 as the, the majority party. They won every year until 1828. Uh, at that point... The cycle ran 28 years. Then in 1828, Andrew Jackson, our next major president, was elected. Uh, That was a very, very contentious election. He beat John Quincy Adams, who was the representative of Jefferson's old party. And uh, Jackson renamed his party, or named his party the Democratic Party, and that is really the beginning of the Democratic Party we know today. So Jackson is elected in 1828, 
and the Democrats uh, continue to win every presidential election up until 1830, I'm sorry, 1860, with two exceptions, 1840-1848, the Whig Party, which was the minority party in that, at that time, <clears throat> manages to win the White House two times. Uh, in 1860, you had a civil war about to break out, another major event. And that forced a political realignment. It caused voters to shift from one party to another. Uh, and in 1860, uh, the winner, of course, was another major president, Abraham Lincoln, who created or uh, consolidated, I, I should say, the Republican Party. And from 1860 to 1896, the Republican Party was dominant. However, the Democrats did manage to win uh, two elections in that, that period. Uh, with a very weak president, but nonetheless, they, they did hold the White House for eight years. But otherwise, it was a Republican era from 1860 to 1896. Uh, 1896 is the next critical election. And this time, the problem was that the country was in a major depression. Uh, this was the election between William McKinley and William Jennings Bryan, very famous election. Lots of interest. And again, voters changed parties in a way that had not happened uh, since Lincoln. Uh, when, it was, when the dust was settled, <clears throat> McKinley won. And he reestablished the Republican Party as the dominant party. So in a critical election, it can go either way. The, the party that uh, was dominant for the previous cycle, can win again and continue on. And that's what the Republicans did in 1896. Uh, we don't think of McKinley as a major president, but in reality, he was. He was very powerful. He transformed the country in significant ways. Uh, and uh, I guess we forget him because he was assassinated, didn't fill out his second term. But in any event, uh, he established this Republican era that ran up through the 1920s. And by this point, uh, the period was 36 years. Uh, in 1832, the next critical election, Franklin Roosevelt was elected. And he began a Democratic era. He established a Democratic majority coalition but stayed in power until 1968. Um, 1968, believe it or not, was the next critical election, and the big issue there was the Vietnam War. That was what caused large chunks of voters to shift their allegiances. The other uh, big factor was the Civil Rights Movement, which caused Southern voters to shift over from their uh, traditional allegiance to the Democrats, uh, they all shifted en masse to the Republicans in 1968, or started to. Um, then Nixon managed to screw things up. No one will be surprised to hear me say that. 
he, of course, got involved in all kinds of uh, criminal activity. You have the Watergate scandal. And in 1976, after Nixon had been forced to resign, uh, Jimmy Carter gets elected as a Democrat. Uh, probably he shouldn't have been elected. Uh, in all likelihood, Ronald Reagan should have been elected in 1976. But because of Watergate, the cycle was thrown off for the, really the first time since 1800. And Jimmy Carter snuck in. But it was a Republican era still, and so Carter was a very ineffectual president. 1980, it returned to Republican control with Ronald Reagan. Uh, Republicans stayed in power until, we know, at least 2008. Uh, however, re remember that in each cycle, the minority party gets two years to hold the White House. I'm sorry, two terms to hold the White House. And in that cycle, those two terms were... Uh, won by Bill Clinton. So he was the minority president, but nonetheless, it was a Republican era, and therefore what he could do was highly limited. 2008, uh, which really is 40 years since the cycle, but then if you subtract four years for Jimmy Carter, it's 36. Um, in 2008, Barack Obama was elected, and that should have been a critical election. Was it? Well, we can talk about that because, of course, Obama was fairly limited in what he was able to do. It was as if he was working in a Republican era. 2016 should have been a Democratic year uh, if this really was a new Democratic cycle that had been started by Obama. But, of course, we all know that it wasn't. Donald Trump was elected. However, he was elected with the help of the Kremlin. And it's also true that he wasn't really a Republican. He was an independent pretending to be a Republican. He had hijacked the Republican Party. So does that count? What really happened in 2016? Well, we can talk about that. Are we back now into a Democratic cycle uh, with Joe Biden? Well, maybe. On the other hand, his ability to get things done has been limited. So maybe we're not. Uh, where are we? That's a good question. But in any event, you can see that this cycle has been very regular, uh, running all the way up to 2008. And uh, it really does explain why our politics has uh, operated the way it has. Explain a little bit more, Dan, about why it's important. Because when I look at the statistics and stuff, some of these um, presidential elections that were pretty much uh, critical were very close. I mean, Humphrey came within, you know, a, a million votes or so of, of winning. And then the whole, if he had won, the whole system would be off. I see that over and over again. And we also have the process where, I guess, um, what, since 1992, I don't think a Republican has ever run the popular vote, yet they've, they've won the, re the presidency. So there's a lot of, when I look at it, Dan, I see a lot of like a almost mechanical give and take shift gears underlying a lot of this stuff. 
So a lot of these races, some of the races like are blowouts. When Eisenhower runs against Adelaide Stevenson, it's just a blowout. When, but it's not a critical election. And when and when when uh, uh, Roosevelt runs against uh, uh, Hoover, it's a, it's a blowout. So there are elections that are blowouts in terms of popular vote, and um, and yet they're they they don't. And then there are elections that are very close, that are critical, that look to me like could, they could have swung either way. Um, you know. Well, look at let's take 1968 because it, it's a perfect example. In 1968, the most important, uh, and again, what what makes a critical election is not the fact that it's important. All elections are important. Uh, it's not the fact that you have a blowout. What makes a critical election is that large blocks of voters move from one party to another or large numbers of new voters who form some kind of block enter the system. So that's the critical, that's the important thing. There's a realignment of voters, voting blocks. Uh, that's what determines a critical election. And in 1968, the biggest movement, there were others, but the biggest movement was the movement of the South away from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party. But Southerners in 1968, uh, remember that they, for uh, ever since the Civil War, they had regarded the Republican Party as the party of Lincoln and the party that had defeated them in the war. So they weren't quite ready to pull that lever for a Republican, and who did they vote for instead? Governor George Wallace of Alabama. If you combine the votes for Nixon and the votes for Wallace that year, you see a pretty sizable majority of the uh, future Republican majority coalition. So in that sense, Humphrey is is uh, occupying a very weak position if you combine Wallace and and Nixon. In 1972, Nixon's majority coalition had been totally consolidated, and at that point, you do get your blowout. Yeah. Yeah. What I see is is. Um when I look at it as a, as a non-political scientist, what I look at is what's happening in Congress as well as what's happening in the presidential area. And it looks to me like there's like the process begins, I think you're right, with, with Reagan, the switch to a conservative thing. Uh, I'm sorry, Reagan, no, I no, said Nixon. No, the, the process began with Nixon. Nixon. Oh, yeah. I, I misspoke. Um, but it doesn't really get consolidated. It doesn't really occur until Ronald Reagan, um, because it gets uninterrupted uh, by, as you said, by uh, Nixon's corruption. So yep. that sort of throws it off. But then Reagan really consolidates it. He's, his first election, I think, was fairly close. Um, but his second election was a, a, a blowout. And when I see these blowouts, it seems to me that that one party is consolidating the, the voters into a, a into a dominant block, um, particularly if they can keep it going. Um, but the thing is, if you look at uh, uh, Reagan's blowout in 1984, 
Yeah. It looked exactly the same in terms of who was voting for him as Nixon's blowout in 1972. So, in effect, Nixon created the majority coalition that was going to pretty much dominate American politics all the way up to Obama. But then, because of his criminal activity, it fell apart briefly in 1976. There were a lot of Southerners who just couldn't stand, you know, voting for a Republican given what Nixon had done. And so, and of course, the uh, Republican candidate was the vice presidential heir, Gerald Ford. He was very weak. And Jimmy Carter was a Southerner who appealed to Southerners. So for that one election, things went back to the old system. But it didn't last, and Reagan, in a sense, reconsolidated. He reformed the majority coalition that Nixon had previously created. What, so I think that, that under most of our lives, most people alive now have been under this uh, conservative consolidation that began with Nixon. So Nixon on up, we lived in a conservative environment. Um, And even, you know, you mentioned Obama, and that's a good example because we watched Obama swoon over to the right to try to, uh, to pick up a lot of Republican and conservative ideology about balancing the budget. Um, his stimulus wasn't large enough a lot, a lot of times because of the dominance of Republican ideology and even getting enough Democrats to vote for it was difficult. So he still, I think the thing is that most Americans, um, who are interested in politics have felt a conservative dominance of the, um, electorate and and the discussion what interests me is more the ambiance the ethos behind everything and that's been the dominant ideology whether a democrat wins or not since since the switch now i if you, if there hadn't been a vietnam war it's easy to see that the democrats might have continued for another you know four years and then maybe eight years and so forth and so on. Well, the critical election theory would say that if there hadn't been a Vietnam War, the Democrats would have continued for another 36 years. <laughs> well, the, But they I, would have created a majority coalition uh, that would have been very durable, you know, once it was formed and that it would have stayed on for a full cycle. So On what, some of these ahead, issues I was looking at, uh, one of the articles about it, and they talked about the other issues like McKinley was the first election in which contributions from businesses played a role. You know, that sort of dark money idea of businesses putting lots of money in, you know, which, is, which uh, I think has, you know, more of an effect as it went on into the, in, you know, through the, into the 20th century and still with us today. And I'm wondering what you think about that aspect of it, the difference between the 19th and 20th centuries, and particularly the later 20th century on this issue of, of the money in politics, and then on some of these two also the effects, the, you know, the differing effects of mass media have come along on this, because obviously in the earlier parts of the 20th century, 
you know, you didn't, ha- you didn't, people didn't have access to the kind of information they have today, good and bad. You know, they were sort of limited in what in the information they had, and a lot of these other aspects of the idea of the smoke-filled rooms and the big money, again, were in effect, but not as public. And I think that sort of made some change on the in the, in the media's aspect on elections that we didn't have in 1932 that we have in 2000 when they start to talk about red states and blue states and this issue. And I noticed there they said that William Jennings Bryan in 96 was the first uh, candidate to concentrate on contested states. You know, this sort of change of the idea of let's focus on a handful of states. And I presume that's the idea of focus on a handful of states in the electoral college and not worry about sort of a mass movement idea. Do you think those are starting to have more, you know, an effect on this cycle in the, as the 20th century went on? And Well, critical election theory would tell you, another way of saying that is political scientists would tell you, that all the things you mention are very interesting and that they, they you know, do have some explanatory power. But ultimately, they're not that important in determining the pattern of critical elections. Uh, yes, uh, in 1896, uh, business started contributing lots and lots of money. But in 1932, uh, despite that, the Democrats won. And the Democrats continued to win the White House with the exception of the two years of Eisenhower in the 50s, they continued to win the White House for 36 years. So, yeah, money came into the, uh, into the picture, business money, that is. But then you have the Democratic period that's uh, right there in the middle of, of everything, and the money wasn't that important. That's uh, because what, there was a depression that 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 broke a lot of support among ordinary people for business. I mean, you had the really the strong rise of the left there. There was a, yes, the left was, was part new, of the dialogue. Uh, a new majority coalition as a result of the depression. Exactly. So what? The what point, about the third point? Po- is the point is that once people had come into that coalition, once that coalition had come together, people continued to vote Democratic, who belonged to that coalition. And the the salient point is, this is something political scientists have found again and again, the biggest predictor of voting behavior is partisanship. If you're a Democrat, you look at the world through Democratic eyes. Your values are those of the Democratic Party at the time where you're, when you're living. And therefore, you will look at the Democratic candidate, whoever the Democratic candidate might be, and say, boy, he or she is exactly what I want. Uh, ditto for if you're a Republican. You're looking at the world through Republican lens. And therefore, you will consistently vote Republican. Now, everyone then, of course, jumps in and says, well, what about independents? They make up such a large percentage of the electorate. What about them? Uh, Well, you look at them closely and you discover that most of them are partisans. They call themselves independents. But in reality, uh, in presidential elections, if uh, they're Democratic-leaning independents, 
they vote Democratic every time. Republican-leaning, they vote Republican every time. Uh, really, just about 10% of all independents are true independents. I think that's true now, Dan. <laughs> but, but when you look at Roosevelt's second election, third election, you you find that that it's not it. People have changed the way they feel about business and and so forth and so forth. The other thing I wanted to ask: What about third parties impacting this? At one time, the socialists had a fairly large vote uh, with Debs, for example. I think that may have been, uh, impacted some of these elections. When I look at them, it seems to me. Dan, less certain than what political scientists think. I mean, the Humphrey-Nixon election kind of could have gone either way. And, well, that's uh, always true of critical elections. Critical elections are the ones that could have gone either way. They are the ones that are fought out and uh, people, is, people are changing their allegiances. There's a genuine... Uh, a situation where people are changing their minds so then you'd about say that where they stand in politics during a critical yeah. election, which is why some critical elections tend to be very close. So you're sort of saying that, and then the critical one is sort of boosted by the fact that that second re-election for that candidate tends to be less, you know, more more in his in his way as as that change yeah. sort of solidifies, which is yeah. why that the second term they the second term is the is the big win and the first term was the squeaker. <laughs> well, what matters what matters is whether or not uh, a majority coalition is formed and stays together. And for example, we may be in a democratic era, even though we feel pretty frustrated. Because our, <clears throat> excuse me, our Democratic president is having trouble getting things done. But uh, have we now established a majority Democratic coalition with all the new younger voters who are Democratic, with all the minority voters who have been pouring into the Democratic Party, and particularly with the suburban voters, especially women, who have started to vote Democratic? Uh, did that added to uh, the Democrats' other base voters uh, create a new majority coalition that will keep uh, uh, the Democratic Party in power for the next couple of decades? We don't know that yet. So the fact that uh, Obama was not as powerful as one might have hoped, the fact that Biden is struggling... Uh, may not indicate very much. Uh, we won't, will not know what's really going on until somewhere about, oh, the 2040s, when we are able to look back. And if Democrats have managed to win, say, seven of the nine elections since 2008, then we'll say, yes, this was a Democratic era. But the only way we, we will know is to move ahead fast forward to, say, 2044 and be able to look back. When I look at the elections, though, Dan, I guess one of the things that troubles me is, again, how close some of them are. And in fact, you know, you have, you know, a Gore winning the election against uh, uh, Bush. Um, so Gore actually won that election. In fact, Democrats have carried all the presidential elections, except for a couple of them since then. Uh, what 
What? So it's hard for me you're, to understand how this factors vote. in. Go ahead, Dan. You're thinking of the popular vote. Yes, I am. But in our system, uh, the reality is the popular vote doesn't count. Yeah, that's a problem. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, you may not uh, be happy about that. Actually, I'm a great fan of the Electoral College. But in any event, uh, uh, that is how we uh, determine who's going to hold the White House. But the point I'm getting at is that looking at these things just as presidential election doesn't focus on the whole processes that I see going on. So we have the Vietnam War and the Civil Rights Movement, and the country really divides, and the Republicans, as far as I was, because I was there, (laughs) believe they've got the majority of everything. And that they're going to have this majority forever. That's what they believe. They believe that that this is the that that when people divide it off, they got the uh, blue collar workers, they got the South, they got they have middle class matrons, they have <laughs> uh, business guys, they have it all. That's what they thought, and they and, and accompanying this is a kind of an ideology about economics, about interpersonal relations, even and. It gets interrupted. I mean, here they're going, they're rolling along, and something weird happens, which is that Clinton beats Bush. By all odds, Bush should have gotten his second second term. And then Clinton comes along and beats him, and he's a very conservative Democrat. And I can see that. He's in a, a Republican ethos, and he's trying to operate in the ethos. So when I looked at things like... Um, um, welfare. I saw this rage against welfare building up through even in the radio with the uh, Russell and Bond stuff, building up against welfare. So welfare just did not permanent welfare just didn't have the support of the American people. They never really signed off on it. They never signed off on getting rid of capital punishment. So these things then come up when when you have an election. So it is popular. You know, so you're. It is possible to interrupt the cycle. So you well, think yes, that every, two every cycle is interrupted two times? Yeah. Well, okay. Then why isn't why didn't um, uh, Trump win a second term and interrupt it for twice? Well, Trump again is such an anomaly because he's not a real Republican. He doesn't uh, share most Republican beliefs. Uh, he is. Uh, not really tied to the Republican organization, and he really was an independent who uh, managed to gain control by force of the Republican Party. But he does uh, have that control now, Dan. I mean, he, he has control, that control now. Yes. I'm reading nobody can even, in the Republican primaries even disagree with him, even question his lie about winning the last election. They all well, there there just... have been a number of stories, if you've been watching over the last uh, few weeks, about polling which shows that Trump's hold on the Republican Party <clears throat> is actually starting to weaken. As so a, whether, whether it will or As an or individual, we'll but see. not, not but, as an ideology, it seems to... The people that are running, whether they... You know, are saying the same things he did. We just had in Arizona the one 
person in our running for governor in Arizona who people would have viewed as sort of a traditional conservative Republican dropped out because they could get no traction against the people who believe that Trump won and who believe in QAnon. You know, so yeah. Yeah. so that aspect of his, so, you know, he, so, his uh, personal in, in power a, may de- decrease, but not his ideological well, power. Uh, if you look at it from critical election theory, uh, what someone might say is, uh, and again, I, I, as I indicated earlier, it's all up for grabs mm. right now. We're in the middle of a cycle, and it's very hard to interpret what's happening when you're in the middle of it. But someone could say, okay... But uh, what Trump is doing uh, is turning off a fair number of suburban voters. So we can sort of look back and hope that he's sort of the anomaly that Jimmy Carter was. Uh, yes. Got elected in a an Republican era due to, that, uh, you know, due to uh, issues within the party. What yeah. is help the Democratic coalition to come together again in 2024 and Right now, if you ask me for my best guess, I would say that's what's going to happen, that the Democratic Majority Coalition will come back. The other thing is the Democratic Majority Coalition, if you look at the demographics, is destined to get stronger and stronger uh, with each presidential election. Uh, uh, You have all the younger voters who will vote in larger numbers. You have increasing numbers of minority voters who will be coming into the electorate. And uh, if that's all going to hold true, then the Democratic Majority Coalition will allow the Democrats to hold the White House most of uh, the time between now and the uh, mid-2040s. before we were, we've got I don't know ten minutes left. Then all right. Yeah. So we got critical election theory, which which you see as a political scientist focused focused on presidential election. There's these periods of thirty thirty six years where one particular party, in in my view, dominates the discussion. And uh, you know, a lot of times you'll have very strong minorities. Like back in the progressive area, if I suppose if you combine the progressive vote and and uh, you know, you had a very strong liberal uh, progressive vote, even though it was a dominantly Republican era. What? Why do these things exist? So if, if there are these patterns in American history, first question is. Are there these patterns in other countries, uh, or is it United United States? And secondly, what's the real impact of this? What do we what do we gain from it in terms of a, a practical vote? I mean, I don't care what error it is. You know, as you said earlier, I'm not going to vote for for Donald Trump if he runs for anything. Well, that's the first question is a great one. Do you see anything like this? Uh, in other countries. And uh, political scientists, I really haven't followed this as closely as I should have, but yes, they're beginning to find similar patterns in other countries, but they're a little bit different. Uh, They vary by country, by the country's culture, but no one has the kind of regularity that we have. I mean, you look at our record and you look at the way this pattern has worked itself out, Uh, over uh, two centuries, and it's phenomenal. It is so regular. You can say it shouldn't work 
you know, you can say, oh, uh, you know, why on earth should it be that consistent? But the fact is that it was that consistent. It's just a reality. Do you think some of that consistency here is that we really have had a a dominant two-party system? Where in some yeah. of these other countries, I saw the one I would talk, try to talk about Canada, 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 Britain, European countries, really uh, through large periods of times don't have just two dominant parties. There may be three, maybe even four, that are you know splitting the electorate. So you do yes. that. And that I'm sure, and then coalitions they, obviously they don't have the yeah. electoral college. There's yeah. a whole series of reasons why yeah. they're different. So their coalition building of going back and forth, I think, would have an effect on on damping down a dominant party from time to time. So what is the underlying process, Dan, that creates this regularity in your view? What what is it that causes it? Because if things change every 30, 36 years, something has to cause it. It's the view of a generation of scholars who try to understand our politics. But the uh, the underlying mechanism is partisanship, and the fact that Americans form very strong partisan allegiances. They decide, or they don't actually decide in a conscious way, but they become, uh, in the course of their their lives, Democrats or Republicans. They may change their party affiliation. In, uh, in large numbers during a critical election, but otherwise they stick with their allegiances. And that's why the pattern is so regular, because uh, partisanship is so powerful among Americans, and uh, we stick with it and stick with uh, the coalitions to which we belong uh, through thick and thin, even when it's not entirely rational. So it's almost like a generational thing, which is generation is a years. good way to think of it. Yeah. However, there are there are families that are, you know, Democrats for a whole century, for a hundred years. Uh, uh, the Republicans, uh, rather Democrats in the South, uh, were Democrats all the way from the 1860s up until uh, uh, 68, 72. So. Um, uh, you know, sometimes the uh, allegiance just continues. But every 36 years, suddenly things are up for grabs, and suddenly new uh, forces enter the picture. So the question now, Dan, and we've got less than two minutes remaining, is what period are we in now? Is it, If Trump comes back, I suppose, then uh, the Republican... Although, you know, it's hard to figure out Trump in terms of Republican values. But um, certainly the demagoguery won. Um, If we're in a Democratic era, that's going to mean Democratic candidates, some of them stronger, some of them weaker, winning presidential office and maybe Congress? Yes. My best guess... My best guess is that we are in a democratic era that was ushered in by Obama during the Great Recession of 2008, and that as a result, Democrats are going to win the presidency uh, for the next 20 years. 
I think that's what's going to, for most of that time, remember, you, you're still going to get two more Republican presidents okay. in that time period. We're going to hold you to that, Dan. And so in, well, in, yeah, in 36 I, I years, we're going to check in with you again and see if you're right. We'll, we'll be back in, in 36 years if we're still not all sort of deaf and blind and decrepit by then. Since <laughs> Steve, Steve and I may not see that. as a, We won't be active Democrats by that point, Hale. We'll We'll be inactive. inactive. Uh, all our uh, <laughs> podcast folks are on uh, vvid.org. We do need your support. Uh, and visit our Facebook page. Lots of information there. Lots of discussion. You've been listening to Democratic Perspective. Brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats. A weekly talk show focusing on the political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and our nation at large. Catch us every Monday morning after the 8 a.m. news. Right here on AM 780 KAZM. It's beautiful out there, folks. Have a great day.